hey man, thanks for doing this. Right. So I've known you for like tons and ton, tons of years um, since my early, early days at back in Bloomberg. Um, I remember that at the time when I first met you, I was like really impressed by your credentials and um, and then I think at some point in time, it kind of like veered into, into the social hemisphere. You was, you was mentioning going diving or something like that and we didn't actually go diving. Right. But I've, I've covered your work through the years uh-huh. uh, and, and kind of kept in touch. But... Um, if you can just start at the start for us, Chichang, and, and you know, um, you were one of the most established financial analysts in town and um, continued to be one of the best, in my opinion, uh, right. up until today. I <laughs> uh, just want to, you know, maybe start off with your, your thoughts on whether, you know, financial analysts is, is still a relevant job today. In fact, how did you get into, um, you know, into the whole research analyst game? All right. Uh, well, actually, funnily enough, uh, you want to backtrack a bit. Back in school, you know, they always ask you to fill up uh, what jobs you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, actually, uh, I actually filled up. Um, well, early years was chef. Chef. Uh, Are but, you serious? <laughs> hey, but actually, I do still like cooking. Seriously, so I still do a lot of cooking myself. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, for me, accounting actually was something I actually enjoyed at school. I found it easy. So I actually had to, you know, when people always put down like, you know, engineer, accountant, you know, we just put down those things because that's the standard stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I thought, you know, accounting is what I wanted to do. So I did accounts, went to university and started doing a degree in accounting. You had a first or something, right? Oh, uh, yeah, I had a first in... Uh, Wait, where did you go? Warwick? At, at Warwick, yeah, that's yeah? right. Yeah, that's How right. do I remember these facts? <laughs> yeah, I wonder, you know, elephant's memory, this guy. I, I, did, I did one bit of research on you just now. Okay. I saw that you had written about life after the Shevening scholarship. Right. But then nothing about your time in Warwick and nothing about your first. But uh, that's what I remember from those days. Okay, right. So how does one fall into into basically chartered financial analysts, you know, territory? Well, I guess in those days it's a bit easier, right? Because it was the days of the stock market boom. Yeah. 1993, biggest biggest time of the year for ever for, for Malaysian stock punting. But since then we haven't seen those days. How did you fall into that whole area? Well, first, when I, well, okay, so I, I thought I wanted to be an accountant. Yeah. So after second year uni, I came back and uh, did an internship at Pricewaterhouse. Yeah, as, as you do. As you do, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then uh, I discovered this thing called timesheets. Right. Have you heard of timesheets? No, no. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's what accounting firms do, right? you you got to fill in. So Correct. you got to count for every single hour that yeah. you worked. Yeah. It's ridiculous. That's how accountants do it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> To justify the amount of fees that they charge clients. Yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> I worked at KPMG, I know about timesheets. I used to lie through my teeth, but don't tell anybody that, right? So, so timesheets. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, so okay. But no, no, no way I'm going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that put you off like the whole consultancy thing. The whole audit firm thing, the whole essentially. Audit firm thing. Yeah. Okay. But at that time, also, um, there was the big, there was a big boom in the US at that time, and there were these stories. Uh, the big books at that time were, if you remember, Liars Poker. That's right. Uh, Barbarians, Michael, at, um, yeah. yeah Michael, Michael Milk. Uh, no, uh, Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis. Yeah. Liars Poker. That's right. Yeah. And then uh, Barbarians, Barbarians at the Gate. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right. And so that switched you on to share market investing. Uh, yeah, so those are all these stories about investment banking and how exciting it was, blah blah blah. So I thought, all right, uh, come back to Malaysia. Where were you? Uh, my first degree at Warwick. Okay. So, yes, yeah, so after graduation. So you okay at the time. You're okay. okay. Yeah, so reading those books. Uh, then came back to Malaysia looking for a job. At that time, they were, they were just called merchant banks. Yeah. And that was the, kind of the, like, the, um, the thing to join, right? Yeah, that's days. right. That's right. So I shot off like uh, six CVs to the six uh, bigger merchant banks. Yeah, yeah. And then I ended up working for, at that time, DNC Sakura Merchant Bankers. One of the biggest at the time. Yeah. And that was part of the uh, Rashid Hussein group. 
before he spun off into the whole um, RHB thing, right? Uh, no, he already owned it at, the, at that time. Okay. The names just hadn't changed. Okay. So actually, I joke, I lived through uh, three name changes at the place. Okay. It was DNC it was Sakura. DNC first, right? Yeah. Then it became DCB Sakura. DCB, that's right. Then it became RHB Sakura. So then what happened? So then what happened was uh, those really fun times. I started working in 93, as yeah. you know, stock market boom and all that. Yeah. So, you know, every year... It was crazy. Yeah. I, had, I had friends who were in the industry. And there was one time, I remember, there was this like stock brokerage going for sale. 200 million bucks. Okay, wow, price. yes. And they were, you know, there was meetings after meetings. They're trying to broker this. And these were brokers trying to broker it. So <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> the sale of a stock brokerage is crazy. Yeah. And this guy was getting quarterly bonuses. Wow. That's yeah. how good the money was. Yeah, it was really good in those days. Yeah. yeah. And these quarterly bonuses were huge. Like... Yeah, I won't say how much, but they were huge. They took commissions in those days, so like one percent point, you know, that's point right. or point seven five percent. That's right, that's right. And I think the the the, the weightage of the KLCI at the time was like something like six or seven percent or something, right? Oh, in uh, in global Within markets. MSCI. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like, right. I think closer to eight percent actually. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so I was on the corporate finance side doing IPOs, rights issues, and the like, yeah. and it was great. Uh, and but the work, you know, the work just kept flowing in essentially. Yeah. And you get promoted every year and bonuses for like for us in those days, call it maybe between six to nine months. Which, uh, in those days, was considered very, very good. It was all right. Yeah, I mean. Bloody hell, days. man. Six to nine months. You know, like my friends who went out and You'll joined. You'll never uh, fucking see those bloody bonuses in the media and world, man. Yeah. You know, and those friends who joined regular corporates, if they got three months also, they were happy. Yeah. You know, yeah. because it's nine months. But after two years, I realized that um, because you didn't have to do any marketing. Yeah. And life actually, was easy. Life was easy, you know. And I felt that if I stayed on for a bit longer, I would be stuck. Oh, okay. So complacency was in your thing? Uh, in a sense, um, you could say, yeah, com- you know, I always wanted to be always conscious about adding value and building yeah. your own uh, kind of like skill set. Yeah. So then you went from like basically deal arranging yeah. to like front of house, which is in a way like stock market. And actually, so to a large extent, I'll say it wasn't really deal arranging, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, if, if we were doing deal arranging, then I might have stayed on. Yeah. But uh, very often the deals were actually really hammered out in the back room by the major really? shareholders themselves. Okay. Uh, at least uh, we advanced. Was. Yeah. And by the time it came to us, uh, a lot of times we we're just doing a bit of touch up and mainly processing. Okay. Yeah. So then how did you go from that to like broking? Okay. So looking around then at that time, then this whole industry of um, securities analysis was coming up in Malaysia. Because what happened was that in the first phase of the stock market boom, really any stories. You just needed a story. You, you didn't even need a story. You just said, he said, she said, he <laughs> yeah, said, whatever way. they said or whatever, right? Yeah. So you look at the, 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 the first wave of uh, very successful uh, analysts, they were essentially all ex-business journalists, business reporters. That's right. Because they do the market and they say, you know, write a story, write a spin, and there you have it. Yeah. But the market was then starting to get more sophisticated and people were starting to ask for things like, uh, you know, some PL forecast, cash flow forecast, balance sheet forecast, and the like. That would have been a new thing. <laughs> yep, that's right. There was a, so I got in at a time when the industry yeah. was changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I got in then because then, as an analyst, uh, it helped me bridge the gap. Um, I've never been very good at marketing or selling. Yeah. Um, so I couldn't do outright sales, of course. Yeah. But as an analyst, you do a lot of research, yeah. but ultimately, you have to go out and pitch the research. So that's what you got to sell. That's why they call it sell side analyst, yeah, right? You got to right. sell the idea. Yeah. So, but you stuck with it a damn long time because you started in early 90s. When I met you, it was in the early 2000s. Okay. And you still went on for quite a long time. Yeah, I started in, I think, was it 96? Yeah. And I ended in 2008. So, right? It's 12 years, yeah. long time. Because I loved it, actually. Yeah. yeah. 
It's good actually. That that part of it is interesting. But then to sell the idea is not so, you know, not so appealing to you, I presume. Oh no, that was certainly very appealing because from there you learn so many things. One, you learn how to couch an idea. Yeah. You couch learn, an idea. Yeah, you learn how okay. to pitch it. Oh, you that's know, right. then how to pitch. Right. Yeah, find an angle. And sell and sell it. the theme to like the whole world, right? Correct. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> and then the, the exposure you get is actually phenomenal because you know you you're always traveling. Well, first of all, your job is to uh, see different corporates, learn new things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So on that one side, you learn a lot of businesses and you actually get very high access, very often CEOs, CFOs, yeah, yeah. right? So you really um, get to talk, sometimes business strategy. And then also as a good analyst, you also want to really understand nuts and bolts. So you try and find other contexts. Well, the best analysts levels. are the ones who know the whole business of how it works, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Henry Blodgett, I think in the early days, he was renowned for actually going down to the shop floor. If he was covering a, a retail firm, he'd actually spend weeks and weeks on the shopping floor itself and look at the passersby, which shops they're going to, which kind of things they'll be buying. That's the best analyst, right? Yeah, they that's really right. get into the whole fabric of the business. Yeah, that's right, you know. So because the CEO and CEO will tell you one thing. Yeah, that's and you right. you figure out, okay, how far, the, yeah, that's right. how close the to the truth is. Different. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah, yeah, that's right. So would you recommend this career to, to someone who is in, you know, in his late 20s, mid 20s? This, today? Now, today? Yeah, today. Uh, I think sadly, probably not. Really? You know, times have changed. Yeah. So, yeah, so why not? Well, okay, when I was uh, starting out, Back in '96, hedge funds were still very new. The market was pretty much long-only funds okay. who really genuinely had really at least a one-year horizon. Let's yeah. put it this way. Yeah. And in fact, they were actually building out their own analyst teams. Yeah. You know, it used to be, for example, there would just be one fund manager calling the shots based on you know uh, whatever was hot story for the for the week or for the month from the broker. Mm. But they were starting to build out their own like analyst teams uh, and you know putting in more rigor into the investment process. Yeah. And so there was a really good time to be in because then, you know, you had people who genuinely wanted to understand the business and make a call as to, you know, on a one, two-year time frame, is this going to do well at least? Right now, the market has really shifted to momentum and everyone is just asking, you know, what's the catalyst? Is it going to move in three months? Yeah. You know, the whole thinking has moved towards a really, really short-term... So is there no call for like a really good fundamentally driven, you know, um, details-oriented, meticulous old school analysts like, like yourself of, of, for today, has, has that era gone already, you think? I think uh, the sad part is um, there isn't a way to make it commercially viable. Because you guys, you belong to a, well, at the time when you were working as analysts, you belong to a profession that was notoriously fickle. You could lose your job at the, you know, at the drop of a hat, right? <laughs> Especially if you work for a foreign firm and you lived an eternal fear that if the market ever turned, you would be the first guys to go out because that's the way the cookie crumbles, right? Once the, the deals, once the orders stop coming in, there is no monetary justification to keep the analysts on the, on the team, right? Yeah, that's right. And then they will only rehire when the market turns back. So that was like, I guess the trade-off for the, the huge salaries you, used to, you guys used to get. I mean, that was the trade-off for the justification. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the reality was, you know, in those days, um, people got laid off, but they got rehired again very fast. Very quickly, especially yeah. if they were good. Yeah. Because we were very lucky in the sense that if you look at the whole layout, right, the first phase of brokers in Malaysia were the European names. Names like James the Cable. The Flemings. Yeah, that's right. Sokjans. Correct. And yes. So-and-sos. Yes. But then as they were imploding, the American guys were coming in. Yeah. So I think really any, everyone I knew who got laid off from the European guys all ended up being rehired by the, yeah. by the US firms. So because of now the phenomenon for algorithms and you know program buying essentially right by the big algo traders, 
I don't know whether it was you who told me or someone, one of my friends from the kind of like the similar era saying that he doesn't see any really good analysts today who are active. Was it you who told me? Uh, might that, have are worth, <laughs> that are worth their salt in, in terms of how they look at stocks and how they value stocks and how they call stocks. Okay, I wouldn't. Uh, I need to be more diplomatic, I guess. You know, don't piss off all the analysts <laughs> I have. <laughs> well, you should. I mean, you should call a spade a spade, right? Call a spade a spade. No, I think what they're doing is they're responding to market reality, right? Market reality is really not interested in deep industry knowledge anymore. And if the, and if the clients don't want that, then you're so very foolish to be spending time doing that type of thing. So then, how is money being made? Because none of the local houses, or very few of them, as I understand it, have a hedge fund operation. It's all driven driven out of foreign operations. So so. So where did the local clientele go go for good good information on, on, on the stock? You know, local clientele meaning locally based. Lo- lo- yeah, well, local investors, the mom and pop guys, right? Who, rather other than the Great Biden, which is obviously dangerous, where would they go for? I mean, if they can't do their own research, then where would they go? Yeah, that's hard. Yeah, and that's that's the conundrum. You know, yeah. Um, in the end, we need to realize that research costs money to produce. And good research will require a lot of money to put out. Yeah, that's right. And so that's why you've got a market failure, actually. Very, yeah. inter- very interesting. Okay, so so fast forward to today, right? Uh, we're now in January. Um, well, give or take, right? Um, Ten years since the last financial crisis. I'm pretty sure you're keeping your finger on the pulse, kind of, right? What's your feel? Feel? I think things will get worse before they get better. That's a typical analyst <laughs> statement. <laughs> Quite typical. <laughs> Things will get worse before they get better. We've, been, we've heard that many, many okay, times already. Okay. Um, how bad? How bad is anybody's guess? You know, but essentially, you know, that I think anybody who's, who, who, who tells you it's going to get this bad is really just uh, pandering to the market and you know, people want a hard answer. I mean, a, a solid answer. It's got to be this bad. Market is going to come down another 20%. But what you have to realize really is that the market is dynamic and things continue to flow. And you just need, rather what you need to look at is the facts around you. The facts around you is you have a very unpredictable precedent in the, in the, in the US. You know, it's the world's biggest economy, it's the world's biggest superpower. As long as that behavior is erratic, it's going to be very hard for markets to move up. So add all the other unpredictabilities like the algorithmic trading, and uh, as I understand it, there's already been a couple of uh, currency flash crashes in the last couple of weeks. It's been crazy. The dollar just went down, just just like it just the bottom fell out. So what you have you have really is that um, you know, so it's just all these uh, short-term traders trying to make some money from the noise. Yeah. You know, but if you talk look at it from a purely fundamental perspective, yes, you're ups and downs, up and downs, up and downs. So all these algo traders would try to take advantage of it. Right. But if you're just a pure fundamental investor saying, all right, you know, um, I want to put my money somewhere. But if you look at the whole global, look at this whole situation, what you have now is really a, a case where news flow is likely to be at best neutral, let's put it this way. And if it's going to be at best neutral, then every time there is, generally speaking, a bit of a shocker or a bit of unexpected news, then the market just keeps trending down. So what are you, in your opinion, what are the top three or four things to watch out for in 2019? In Good and bad. Top things to watch out for, yeah, like kind of like milestones in the sand that um, that will compel you to either you know do you know to do more in terms of buying more shares or to getting you know take some money off the table or 
I know, and speak personally, I mean, you know, I'm sure you got money in the market still. I don't know how much, but um, you might want to be putting some of that stuff into like some defensive areas. I know people are saying cash is defensive. People are saying gold is defensive. People are saying, I don't know, REITs are defensive. Speaking personally, you know, what, what kind of stuff, what kind of things are you watching out for? Um, if you talk about, say, what's defensive, what's not defensive, I would, uh, me personally, for example, I have money in Maybank. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, That's a perennial defensive, right? You know, in a way, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and it gives you a very decent yield now, about five and a half, six percent. I saw, I was looking at the price to book value, actually. They're trading at just over one time book value, 1.4 or something. And that's already a bit higher than the one, just over one last year. They were, they were whacked down, you know, it's crazy. I think CIMB is just over one time book value. RHB is below book value. Yeah. It's crazy. Affin is trading below, below book value. Arab Malaysian is trading below book value. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. How do you justify those things? Those those banks are trading below book value. Traditionally, when you think of below book value, it means that they're on the verge of like bankruptcy, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. So how can that be possible? Well, I'm actually um, pushing on the bankruptcy. Okay, how can it be possible? Would be that generally speaking, then investors are really not confident in management of those banks. And they're thinking that at some point in the future, that's going to have, they're going to have to take write-offs yeah. that will affect the book value. So some of it might be irrational, if you like, pessimism. But some of it really is, I mean, let's face it, you know, if you look at the banks in Malaysia, or you go along to their briefings, or you look at their uh, slides, there is no real compelling story. Everyone is just saying the same things. Oh, you know, we want to chase the consumer market, you want to do this. SME business. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and on the ground everybody says it right so how much SME business is that to go around correct and then when you start trying to drill down and okay what are they actually doing to get into the business you don't actually no start, real strategy I mean they're, they're sharing with you lah. they're sharing with me or you know anecdotally talking to friends yeah. um, right now also in terms of at work you know um, dealing with bankers I don't see any kind of uh, hunger coming from the banks and you know the, the perennial um, issue for most of us is that the banks are hugely unresponsive yeah. So how do you explain the fact that public bank trades at what two point five times book value? It's crazy. They seem to be making money quarter in, quarter out. Good times and bad. Uh, I think on a twelve month basis, I saw because I have access to the Bloomberg. They're up twenty five percent. The last twelve months is crazy. Everybody is on their knees, and public bank has just gone like, like there's nothing going on. It's crazy. How do you, how do you explain that? I think what happens at public bank is that they are still more old school bankers. In so relationship. Yeah. Okay. So that matters. A lot. Yeah. Because what will happen would be that in maybe it's coming, maybe it's reducing now. But what you know in Malaysia is that let's face it, there's a very large cash economy. Historically, there's been very um, high amount of under declaration by yeah. all these uh, SME businesses. Yeah. Right. So most of the so-called Corporate banks have moved on to call it credit scoring type policies, okay. right? Um, okay, this guy, this company wants some facility. Okay, pull out the annual report. Okay, we're talking about senior hearts, right? Okay. okay, pull out the annual report. Uh, get some sense of what is the uh, uh, historicals. But we know for a fact, really, that for many of these companies, a fair amount there's a fair amount of under declaration going on. Whereas what will happen at public bank is that the public bank branch manager, I believe, um, they will go around the neighborhood <coughs> and look at who's, who's who, who are in the factories, who are in the warehouses. 
Oh, I'll give you an example. Um, this was okay. Bear in mind, this is a very old example, really, from like eight nine years ago. Okay. So I don't know how relevant it is, but so this person I know happens to run a business um, in a shop lot. Uh, he did very well. Uh, a lot of business was cash, so of course he underdeclared his income. Then it turned out that he wanted to buy a larger house. Personally, la. Personally, okay. that's right. And of course, uh, his form J <laughs> doesn't add up, right? <laughs> <laughs> so he went to the usual banks, and all of them looked at his form J and said, "No way, we're going to give you a loan." Yeah. Then he went to public bank. Public bank said, "All right," because public bank is just around the corner. And the guy came around to look at the shop. We spend maybe you know, walk around every few days, look at the business, then ask him, okay, show me your last six months bank statements. Personal as well as. Personal as well as business. So then my friend wanted the loan, so he showed him bank statements. All right, we'll give you a loan, but you have to transfer all your accounts to us. Oh, I see. Okay, that's very clever. Yeah. So that's the differentiator between the public bank and the, like a main bank or a CIMB. Uh, to me, that is. But uh, yeah. that said, you know, I've first up front to say I'm not a banking analyst. I don't know this in detail. Yeah. But just anecdotally, from what <laughs> I can tell, um, public bank branch managers have a lot more yeah. leeway. So, so when you analyze a stock, when you look at a stock idea, right? And bear in mind that someone like you is probably like um, a lot less risk. Um, hungry than, than say someone who's 20, 25 years old yeah. you want something which is quite defensive um, capital almost capital guaranteed some kind of like predictable dividend every year yeah. um, presumably right yeah. right because you and I are kind of like similar right vintages yeah. how would you analyze a stock how would you you know do your stock picking process personally uh, personally now after uh, a lot of tuition fees <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, yeah. Tuition fee, right? Tuition fees, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Still for me, every day. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I realized uh, I got no skill at chasing hot ideas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's really just uh, looking for, again, this all boring businesses that you can understand. Yeah. And then waiting for what you perceive as a reasonable entry point. So, so typically banking, right? Because you can see, you know, you understand banking, how banking works, right? Would that be a traditional business for you? Um, traditional business, and then also the other part is that in a country like Malaysia or in Asian countries, uh, banks are very, you know, you know that the government will backstop okay. the largest banks. Okay. You know, banks are crucial to the modern economy. So, so, so there's kind of like a systemic risk element or the avoidance of systemic yeah. risk element. That's right. So you know that certain large banks, like say Maybank, yeah. would be protected in a way, right? Yeah. Or rather, <laughs> if, if Maybank is in trouble, it means the whole Malaysian economy is in trouble and we're all in trouble. Right. Yeah, yeah, if Malaysian economy is okay, Maybank should be Maybank must be okay by definition. There's no way uh, it won't be okay if the Malaysian economy is. So, so what other sectors would you look at typically? I mean, manufacturing, furniture, or you know, retail, or. Um, well, REITs were good. Yeah, were good. They were good. No longer. I think not because I think retail has just been killed by internet shopping. So the whole idea behind the mall read would be kind of like a bit off, off, off the mark today? Uh, to me, I'm avoiding them, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Because I think uh, a lot of the malls will, will suffer. Yeah. So if you were like, trying to advise a 31-year-old a guy in Malaysia, male or female typically, right? 
um, looking to basically put aside some money for the long term to get married, maybe to buy a house, maybe have a nest egg in 10, 20 years time. What kind of things would you tell him or her? I think really the most important really is to get real. Okay. Is it get real about how what you expect from the market? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Because yeah. those days of like 20, 30, 40, 50% double up, whatever, gone? Yeah. Really? I think they've gone. That's right. I mean, we had, we had huge tailwinds. You know, now, now they look back with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. The last Tail- 10 years is huge. Yeah, tailwinds, you know, by uh, interest rates coming off. Yeah. You know, that, that, and liquidity coming into the system. We had all this kind of uh, expansion going on. So that's gone. That's gone. That's okay. Gone. So expectations um, have to be managed. <clears throat> what, what else? So, well, so firstly is that, uh, you know, the, don't expect huge returns on the market. Actually, that, that's the other bigger picture, right? If you talk to most people, they say, how much do you expect from an equity investment? What, what's the range people tell you nowadays? 15% still? Or 10 15%? You know? A year? Mm. 10 to 15%? No way, man. Forget it. But isn't that what most people would say they expect? What's that? Well, what are they asking nowadays? I don't know. Actually, experience? I have no idea. Depends on what you buy, right? No, but generally speaking, okay. Invest in equities, what, how much? Okay, yeah, so 10-15% would be typical, typically appealing for like, historically. Right? Yeah, I mean, that's what people, are, you know, that's right, they will expect. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. at least like, historically, at least, yeah. yeah. But bear in mind that, you know, generally speaking, 10-15% really was the benchmark way back when I was at university in 93. Yeah. At that time, what were US interest rates? I think, God knows. I think they were... Was it 6% for 10-year? Yeah, that's right. It was roughly like uh, 6% for... Well, 4% for 10-year treasuries, I think. Yeah. And then, 4%, okay. Or was it 5%? 4 to 5%, <coughs> usually. Okay, or generally speaking, they would say it would be like 5% was your risk-free rate. Okay. Yeah, generally speaking, 5% risk-free rate, 8% market risk premium for developed markets. Okay. So you get a 13% expected return for developed markets. And then for emerging markets, you know, your risk-free rate would be like 6-7% plus another... 8% market So it's about premium. 14, 15, Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. But say, uh, developed markets, 5% risk-free, 8% uh, equity risk premium to get you 13% as your required return on the market. And that kind of like mid-teens type of return is really stuck in everybody's psyche, generally speaking, in my experience, when they talk about equity investments, you know. I want to make at least 15% per year is what most people will say. And then 15% every year yeah, thereafter. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. But you have to look at it realistically. <coughs> Between then and now, risk rate has compressed. So 13% before used to be two and a half times the risk rate. That's right. 13%. The risk rate is 10, 4, 4% four, in those yeah, four, days, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right, 4 to 5%. Today, today the 10-year um, treasury is what, 2? Two, 2 and a bit, yeah, that's right. Okay, so if you go on the same multiple of 2, and, uh, two to 3 times that, you're looking at 6 to 7%. Exactly. Then that's realistic. That's realistic. But you try and market the fund and tell people that, okay, your return is going to be 8%. That you don't want to buy your fund. Nobody's going to buy your fund. So what you do if you're... <laughs> <laughs> okay. But see how the industry is broken. <laughs> so, so the typical rule of thumb would be two to three times the risk-free rate. Yeah? I mean, if, if you, not say typical, but you know, if you really apply, okay, what we used to learn, and you know, took down, you know, factored in that risk-free rates have fallen, then it should be yeah, two to three percent, two to three times, yeah. Okay. So what does the 31-year-old guy do then? What does the 31-year-old get last do then? What does she do? What do they want to do? Okay. 2019, yeah. right? Yeah. Going for on because we've we've just come off the most accommodative ten year period yeah. since at least God knows when, right? Yeah. So the next ten years, what happens? What's the advice? What's the advice is uh, um, you know it sounds very harsh, 
Gosh, God. really? It sounds really austere. Really? Yeah. But it's really, you know, take a hard look and really figure out. Okay. 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 If you take it another step back, what you're asking is, okay, uh, I'm 31 years old. I need to make this big pile of money because I need to buy this house, this car, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Or get married or whatever, anyway. right? Okay. Yeah. That's right. So then now is that, all right. Um, how much is all this going to cost you? So get married is what? Uh, what 20,000, big, huge wedding dinner with 100, you know? So say 50,000, right? Yeah, so to get married nowadays, I have no idea. I've got no idea too. But essentially, what I'm saying is that you know, I think sometimes it's that we spend all this money, and really, what's um, like honestly, me personally, I never understood the point of this huge wedding dinners. Yeah, same, same, same. You know, you go there. Okay, the I know people. Couple, I know people hate me for saying that, and they'll be like, "What the hell? What the fuck is wrong with this guy, man?" But um, I've never been on board with the whole like hundred table banquet thing. Yeah, ever. because. Um, first, of all, first of all, the happy couple doesn't actually get to interact with their guests. Even Josh is nodding his head. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, if you really took a hard look at it, hard look at what you really want out of life. Okay, instead of just following the convention, this is yeah. what people have always done, is yeah. that, hey, it's my wedding. What do I want out of my wedding? That's right. And, and, and the same goes for your... For, for, for where you put your head on down and sleep at night yeah. you don't need a bungalow you don't, you don't need a huge mortgage you don't in certain cases you don't even need to buy the house and um, I really guess this sometimes on, on air right on, on, on radio um, Malaysia is trying to push home ownership down our throats Malaysia is trying to push car ownership down our throats and you know we've got advertisements for the, the latest smartphones we don't need all these things yeah. And we're putting people into debt deeper and deeper and further and further into debt. And um, who's going to bail them out when, if and when the shit hits the fan, mm-hmm. right? When, if, if and when interest rates go up. Yeah. And how many of these mortgages are on variable rates, yeah. right? Yeah. How the, who the fuck is going to bail these guys out? Yeah. Nobody. The threshold for bankruptcy in this country is what, 30,000, 35,000 ringgit, something ridiculous like that. Right. Right? We don't have a social system, social, social welfare system to help people. We're hanging these guys out to dry. Yeah. So, so for the, for the millennial, right? Yeah. For, for the 31-year-old guy, expect 6 to 7% return at best from the share market for the next 10 years. Okay, because it's 7 to 8% share market. 7 to 8%, yeah, right? Which is, okay, yeah, okay. which is okay. Which is okay. Do they forego material wants? Should they, should they relook their Actually, habits? Even, should should they not follow people like us in terms of what, they, what we buy? And Sorry, just to put it in perspective as well, right? Even if it's eight percent uh, per year return, if you're able to get it consistently, eight times nine, roughly, well, you double your money in nine years, which is okay. It's okay, you know. I mean, if you're thirty-one, okay, in nine years' time, you double your money. Okay. In another nine years' time, you double your money again. Okay, so buy into things, into into business that you understand, yeah. whether it's baby diapers or whether it's like um, clothing brands or whether it's a banking stock. Yeah. Um, expect something between six and eight percent a year. Um, don't get too ambitious. Yeah. Don't overspend. Yeah. Um, things like that. What else? It's a formula for a happy life, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. What is a happy life? Because you left your job in the corporate world at a very early age. I remember thinking this guy, this guy is sussed that out, but he's he's figured out the rule of the meaning of life, and then for the last I don't know how many years. You've had this amazing existence, but hang on, before we talk about your amazing existence, um, you spent some years uh, in politics, and I saw your Shivening uh, post, 
and you said that after having lived a high life in the corporate world with the fantastic lunches and the five-star hotels and the traveling and Edinburgh and this and that, uh, you decided that your time in national service was, was right. So what was it like when you joined politics? And I know like initially you joined MCA, right? You tried to change it from within. Yeah. Couldn't do it. Yeah. What happened? Well, actually, I joined MCA way back in uh, around 2002 or 2003 when I came back after the shipping scholarship. Uh, there was a time when Ong Kating actually had, was the MCA chairman and he actually was trying to rejuvenate the party. Ong Yeah, that's right. They, and they actually set up a new, a new branch because, you know, the problem with the old parties is that essentially the branches do are dominated by the old warlords and it's very hard to join and they would, you know. So anyway, uh, what they had done was they had set up a branch um, aimed at young professionals. So I went in there. Um, and then, very quickly what I realized, so you know, going for the meetings and say, hi, hi, how are you, and uh, you know, what can we do? And at that time, I would just, you know, go in and see what's going on. And then after that, really what happened was that after, you know, so I, I didn't go in, I didn't flash credentials or anything, I just... Like, so nobody knew who you were? Who, yeah. Okay. But after they figured out that, oh, okay, at that time I was director of research at Citigroup, um, and then I had all these paper qualifications, you could tell that they all felt, well, people felt threatened, essentially. Okay. Okay, like, okay what's he really after? That's an after? interesting approach. Yeah, what's he really after? They, you know, they didn't believe that I had no axe to grind, that I really just wanted a uh, country to be governed a little bit better. You know, uh, you got a feeling that, you know, they were afraid that I was out of their positions. Did you confirm that? Did you, did you talk to someone who, who basically confirmed your suspicions? Um, not say con you don't need to talk to people. It's like, you know, then, you know, um, firstly, they, they didn't really get any many initiatives off the ground. Yeah. And then when I tried to suggest things, they just got stonewalled. Yeah. And then you realize that, okay, um, it's not happening here. Yeah. So then you went over to the other side and had a look there. Uh, that was, then, no, so, so then that just, uh, I just stopped for a long time. Yeah. And only after you I got a bit disillusioned, did you? Not so, much, not so much disillusion, but rather, all right, time is not right, so don't do that. Yeah. And actually, in fact, when I quit in 2008, getting into politics wasn't part of the agenda at all. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so just rewind a bit. You, you left the corporate world because you just had enough and you, you didn't want to... Um, you wanted a bit of a change because you are exhausted and the lifestyle was getting ridiculous and you had enough money. Or what, what was the reason? Because um, a lot okay. of people can get, get addicted to the lifestyle, right? Oh yeah, they can. I know, I know people who are yeah. still doing the same shit. Yeah. Pardon the expression, right. you know, but they're still pushing 18 hour days and oh my God, just for the money and the status. Right. So you got that right. I mean, for me, I was lucky that I genuinely enjoyed the job um, at that time. I would say, you know, when I was first starting out, uh, probably enjoyed 95% of the time. But somehow always in the back of my mind was, you know, when the enjoyment ratio comes down to like 70%, it's time to call it quits. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what drove the ratio down? Uh, the way the market changed, okay. that uh, clients became increasingly... So it's more short-termism? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess you could say mainly it's the, the, mark, the, the way the, the, way the uh, industry changed. So if you were like an aspiring research analyst today yeah. and you were advising a, 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 kid, well, you know, a younger adult what to do with his or her life and you would tell them not to go to research analysis, into to the research. I probably yeah, look for something else. Financial I mean, really, research. what, if, what if would you do? I don't know to be honest because I'm not a young person, and sometimes yeah. it's very hard to tell. Yeah. But if you look at careers, there's always this 
uh, there are always these fads like you know when I was uh, growing up yeah the big thing to be was chartered account you know be an accountant to be a CA to be a CA exactly that's right, yeah. that's right. then in uh, my time was to be a lawyer yeah yeah that's right yeah and then in fact uh, for a while being an engineer was in the doldrums that's right and then you had the oil and gas boom and that's now it's huge well, yeah that's right yeah. you know so sometimes it's it's really hard to figure out what's going to boom, and I think what's more important really is to figure out. Generally speaking, no matter how good or bad an industry is, there's always room for the guys who are good at it. Yeah. So the the trick really then is not so much, maybe you know. Which one is going to be, a hot industry, but to find something that you are good at. And then you know, probably at some phase in your life, that's going to be a hot industry. Yeah. yeah. So how do you talk to your kids about this? Or I, I think your your kids are still a bit too young to talk about them, right? To, 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 to yeah. talk to them about this kind of thing. I think yours and my kids are around about the same age, just below at or below ten years old, yeah. give or take, right? Yeah. So, but I picture myself. I visualize myself talking to my kids about the career paths and what they're going to do with them, or at least at least advising them in in time to come. I envision myself doing that. So how do you envision, if at all, you know? Um, advising your kids on, on future career paths and what to do I think, um, if, if yeah. they were this way inclined? I think firstly, it's not so much uh, advising them on career path, but rather what I'm doing now is laying the groundwork in encouraging, 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 sorry, encouraging them to explore. Yeah, yeah. Um, and explore, develop skills, and you don't have to decide what you want to do yet, but hopefully after you, well, let's put it this way, okay, um, from five, I thought I wanted to be an accountant. Yeah. And like three, four years later, okay, I don't want to be an accountant. Yeah. Okay, go in the merchant bank. Three, four years later, okay, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to become an analyst. Yeah, things change all the time, yeah, right? Yeah, things change all the time. So the, the thing is to, you know, rather give them the kind of like uh, the uh, foundation. Rather the key is to be always curious, I guess. Yeah. And to be always curious in things and to always be willing to strike a balance between, you know, you want to be comfortable and you want to be happy. Yeah. But I think to be really happy, you also always need to be stretching your comfort zone. So what happens if your kid tells you, hey, you know, Dad, I want to be like, um, I want to be a creative genius. I want to be an artist. I'm going to you know, move to Paris and I'm going to paint people and I'm going to sit by the side of the river and, and you know, be a bohemian You're right, yeah. artist. Yeah. And by the way, can you send me, you know, 1,000 euros a month for the next 12 months? Right. What do you? What do you? What do you <laughs> <laughs> no, no, okay. I think what I want to say is like this. Thirdly. What are you gonna tell him? Huh? I tell him there's no good, there's no free lunch. Yeah. Okay. I think what I'll do is at least like this. Right. Um, there will be a pot of money for them to spend as capital, initial capital. Whether you want to spend it on okay, university. Okay, so that's your inherent inheritance to them, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, what's your view towards inheritance? Do you leave them a pot of money? Do you pay for the education? Do you give them the choice between university and, and, and a business startup capital? What, what are you going to do? Yeah, I think for me, it's going to be a choice between university or business startup because frankly, okay. I think universities now are overrated. Exactly. Yeah. I'm on board with you on oh, that. Yeah, yeah so absolutely. Oh, great, yeah. So instead of, so it's like, okay, essentially, I guess the benchmark would be, okay, how much does it cost to have education at a decent university? Yeah. Okay, so maybe on that way because that's what my parents gave me. So I think, um, and I think that to me, that's fair, I think. So whether it's 300 grand, 400 grand or whatever grand, right? Say, so, say, say it's 300 grand, right? You can choose to go to university yeah. and I'm going to spend 300 grand on you. Yeah. Or you don't go to university, yeah. I'll give you that 300 grand. Yeah. In my book, it's going to be strings attached. I want you to show me what you're going to do. Yeah. Gonna give me a plan. Gonna yeah. give me milestones, right? Give me a business plan, essentially. Give me a bloody business plan, yeah. right? That's right. And you want to do that? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. 
Because for someone who who went through tertiary education, same as me, yeah. right? Things have changed in one generation. Yeah, phenomenal. Phenomenal, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Phenomenal. <laughs> um, okay, so that's that's a big thing. So so, how, how old are your kids again? Twelve, ten? Um, no. Okay, the year has just closed. So ten and five this year. Ten and five. Okay, so 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 the ten is is nearer to the eighteen, nineteen years old decision. Right? Yeah, that's right. Not that year, but yeah, time flies before you know it. Yeah. So I think that in the eight or nine years' time, when my kids go to university, things will have changed so much. And I'll be telling them, I'll, I'll, I'll be willing to tell them, look, if you don't want to go to university, that's okay. But bloody hell, make sure you have a plan to get some food in your stomach. Yeah, because I'm right. not going to pay for your existence going forward. Correct. Uh, and if they want to go traveling, I don't mind either. You know? yeah. I'll, I'll pay for the bit of traveling, yeah. go around the world or whatever, or... Spend six months in South South America. Yeah. You pay half, I pay half. Yeah. You bloody well save up for your half, yeah. right? Yeah. Go and work yeah. McDonald's. Go and work as a barista or whatever, yeah, right? right? Yeah. So you 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 do that as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that's strange because we are two traditional kind of like okay. Gen X kind of people who went through this, the the traditional route. We well, got lucky. You went to traditional route. Got yeah. good, well, good universities. You know, good, good education in the traditional ish, sense. Ish, yeah, yeah. But like I said times have really changed now. So. Or rather, what, what has changed is that in the past, um, schools and universities were the repositories of knowledge. Today, no longer, because of the internet. Correct. Right? So in fact, for many, many subjects, arguably, um, universities actually are, not say for many, many subjects, for certain subjects, yeah. universities are actually, what's the word for it, behind time. Yeah. Because, okay, and the value proposition is totally inverse now because what you pay for a top university now will put you in debt for a number of years yeah. for a value proposition for a piece of paper that comes out and you don't pay it off for the same number of years and um, it puts you behind. It puts you behind a peer who, who's going to be working at the same time as your university and uh, it'll, put you, it'll put you at a huge disadvantage. Yeah. I mean, of course, the, of course the challenge is you know, if you get you know, a similar paying job as that university grad yeah. when they actually graduate. Yeah. But the difference really is that, like I said, you know, let's say for things like software and, you know, okay, let's say the way, the way you work in a university would be that uh, curriculums, of course, we have to go through a process, right? And because they have to go through a process, they are always going to be behind. Because, yeah. okay, this is what's because happening. Because you can't just tweak your... You can't just change yeah. it overnight. And, and that's also a good thing because, you, you know, it's where a strength becomes a weakness as well. Yeah. Yeah, because... Part of what you have is you've got rigor. Yeah. You don't just jump in after the latest. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's a bit of a thought process and, and some, some bureaucracy behind bureaucracy, it. But that's okay. Yeah, yeah that's okay. Yeah. You know, but unfortunately for some sectors, that actually make, make, means that you're you're behind time. That's right. Because really, I think a university would be perhaps two three years behind. Any university IT course or university programming course would be easily two years behind time at least. What's happening at the cutting edge? Because you know this cutting edge today. Then the committee needs to get you know, the committee needs to get together to decide what are we going to put in. Right. Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. Get it approved. Yeah. Yeah. And today, going back to what you're saying about how the universities used to be repositories of information, now I can get this the most amazing philosophies and thinking and strategies and ideas behind all kinds of ideas and people have from INSEAD to Berkeley to Stanford, individual lecturers, individual philosophers, individual strategists and thinkers. They're putting everything online. Their writings, their thinking, their essays. It's incredible. Yeah. It is completely incredible, but at the same time, it's got to be shaped because if you don't shape it, 
um, you're going to be spending the rest of your life just contemplating your navel and just in this, this sea of information. Um, so, but I want to go back to, if possible, um, you know, your time in politics, right, and, and, and Malaysia, because we, 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 we've just come off the most amazing year. Um, the first change of government is, what, 61 years. Um, you spend your time inside the opposition. What was it like? Well, the first part was, uh, like I said, when I first quit in 2008, yeah. politics wasn't really in the works at all, actually. Yeah. I was just going to spend time on family and um, community, community being being my resident association. Yeah, well, okay. Yeah, but that's what happened was that... That's, that's quite cool and great, and, <laughs> right, yeah. and, you know, it's yeah, very domesticated. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But what happened was that I had met Tony Poa uh, when I was at City. Yeah. And then and Tony Poa was recently re- uh, elected for the first time in 2008. So he was at that time economic advisor to Waning, and he had to he was given out that position because he was an uh, MP. So Tony heard I had uh, I had quit, and then he he got his claws into me and said, "Hey, look, come and help." And then he said that the position is voluntary, so you, you can do it. So no much. salary lah. No salary, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you can do as much as you want or as little as you want and see how it goes. So I thought, you know. And you know, the title was very big. It was uh, economic advisor to DAP Secretary, Secretary General. That's is, huge, yeah. Yeah, which is actually Guaning, who was yeah. Chief Minister of Penang. So you was reporting directly to him. Yeah, that's right. I thought, well, okay, like no risk to me. Let's yeah. get on. And there was when there's this big refreshing change, you know, because uh, after the, the MCA experience, you know, I thought that there'll be a lot of... Uh, it can't be as bad as that, right? But I wouldn't blame people for being guarded as well, right? Yeah. Like, you know, who's this guy coming in and suddenly becoming... Yeah, they uh, haven't done their pay that you. Yeah, yeah, And then right. who the fuck is this guy, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But you can see how the culture is so different that, you know, when I went in, really the reception I got was, thanks for coming on board and helping us. Okay. Really, at DAP. At DAP. Okay. Because they did it all hands on. No, but bear in mind that at that point, they had won the government for the first time in, you know, Against all odds, no one expected So this it. is at the time 2008 in Penang? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so you're talking about the state government. Well, they had one state government. Pakatan had won like four governments. It's like the first, if you like, the first, the first calls, taste, the first, the first taste of victory, right? And then I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, There's blame a bit them of incredulity saying, at the time as well. They're like, they couldn't believe their luck yeah, in a way, right? right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I wouldn't blame them for then thinking, okay, now we got won something here. Some guys wanted to jump in to enjoy the spoils of war. Okay. But there was never that type of, uh, yeah. So what was it like? Um, are people justified in thinking that it's a very Chinese party and it's very like um, one-dimensional in its thinking? Actually, I think you know that's just the part that their media relations is just so so appalling. Appalling, yeah. yeah. That yes, true. The party is mainly Chinese, yeah. but the fact is that the leaders are really truly Malaysian in the sense that they are multilingual. Okay. Uh, well, I know Guaning is because he's Malay is pretty darn good. Actually, right? all of them are. Um, yeah. Guaning, Kianming, Chintong, they're all fluent in Malay because, you know, the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the state assembly. But isn't it true that if you had a party made up, com- you know, majoritarily speaking, of one race, yeah. then the thinking would also be, will reflect that of the one race. It won't reflect, and you can say the same thing about Amno, right? Amno is predominantly Malay, yeah. and uh, the thinking is also predominantly Malay, right? Because you just made up of wholly one, one, one culture and one, one, one race. Yeah. You can say the same thing about, about, about DAP as well, even though they don't outwardly profess to have that thinking. Yeah. Oh, but when you say thinking of one race now, okay, this is a very interesting concept. So are we falling to the stereotypes here now? I don't know. Oh, because you're Chinese, so you think this way. 
Because you're Malay, yeah, because so you think the, that at way. the end of the day, yeah. at the end of the day, um, whether or not you covertly um, exercise that, that that culture or overtly exercise that culture, it is always going to be there, right? Right. Ah, but therefore, so okay. So, what is the Chinese thinking to you? Just curious. The Chinese thinking would be uh, would be based on industry, right? You want to work hard. There will be a certain amount of conscientiousness about your 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 ability. You'd want to have a certain emphasis on maybe mathematics and 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 engineering and 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 science. Maybe yeah. uh, you would want to push your children towards education. You know, at least um, certainly Mandarin and, and at least English. Then and then Bahasa in that yeah. potentially in that order or or interchangeably two and three. Yeah. Um, you would also want to be uh, pushing your kids to, to traditional industries and professions, whether it's medicine or law or yeah. or engineering or accountancy. I mean, typically, okay, right. la, all those typically, kind of things, okay. right? Fair point. So let's say, China, okay, education, right? Okay, typical Chinese only interested in education. True. But then, um, did you know in Chinese schools now, I think on average, Malays are like 15% of the... Uh, in Chinese schools? Yeah. Okay. It's actually arguably, uh, Chinese schools are actually more multi-ethnic than some government schools nowadays. Well, uh, my kids got a quanching, and I can profess, I can, I can confirm that there's quite a lot of uh, races in the school, but still predominantly Chinese. Okay, still predominantly. But what, but what I'm saying is that you know, if you talk about say um, thinking along so-called racial lines, yeah. again, okay, perhaps fair, fair enough to say, right, that generally speaking, if you're from this ethnic group, perhaps sixty percent would think that way. Okay. But certainly, I would say nowhere close to even eighty percent. You know. Just because you're, you know, in terms of say this generic type of Chinese thinking, okay, the Chinese probably about sixty percent of the population may think that way, but it's going to be another forty percent who think quite differently. So, what does DAP want for the country now that I think there would be the second largest component party in the coalition, right? Uh, PKR is the biggest. I don't know how many they got now. I don't know. I, I don't really follow politics, right? What, what, what in your opinion is what DAP wants in this country? Okay, I can't speak for DAP anymore because I'm not in DAP anymore. You know, I, I stopped all that uh, 2015. So I gave up the front line in 2015. But generally speaking, what I, why I joined the DAP was that generally speaking, they, if you talk about, say, policies and politics, they were what you call center-left in mature democracies. Okay. In that... They believe in industry, you know, okay, typical Chinese police believe in industry and the like. But they also believe there's a role for government. Okay, a strong, a strong uh, top-down government. Well, maybe not so much a strong, again, this is where uh, different people will have different, you know, okay, let's put it this way. If you have another, ext- the really extreme Chinese example would be, I'm just interested in business. I don't care about anything else, I just want to make money. And if you want to look at it one way, that's like the, uh, if you like, right-wing, American, libertarian free markets all the way, no government whatsoever. Government just interferes, right? So DAP and the whole, I would say, the thinking is that uh, because many of them came from families who are small traders, I would say a lot of the leaders, very middle class, many of them were businessmen, and they have seen how government policies actually can affect you, uh, for better or for worse. So yes, you want to work hard. You know, I don't. No one, no one owes me a living, but you also realize that. Um, there's, you need to have government to help bring up others in society, if you like, or to provide channels where sometimes some channels may not exist. So I would say that uh, in my experience, generally speaking, trying to shape the DAP, um, they are more center-left in terms of that approach. 
okay, so 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 still 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 quite lenient towards the central government, still quite lenient towards uh, policies and 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 policymakers that are advantages to business. And to set aside certain incentives for for business to thrive. To thrive, that's right. And then also, of course, you know, education for all that you know that type of thing, basic education. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's your feel <coughs> about Malaysia Baru in this like twenty nineteen? We've had about six seven months now yeah, of the right. new government. Yeah. What do you think? Have well, you I think uh, partly because I've been inside, I I I never had high hopes, so to speak, because I think most Malaysians also don't understand reality, you know, um, in that. And they complain about Pakatan bickering. Yeah. Are they bickering? This is is there this power struggle that's going on? Okay. One person's bickering is another person's um, what do you call it? Healthy exchange of ideas or discussions. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I think what we have had is in the past we had this facade of in BN, this facade of unity. There was no bickering within BN. But not, we know it's because effective. everybody was kind of like just playing subservient, a lap dog, to the big dog. Correct. If you actually had a proper coalition, you would have this bickering, you would have this discussion, you would have this debate. Yeah, correct. Like, you agree <coughs> with your wife and everything. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and if you look at, say, Australia, for example, how many prime ministers is it in the last five years? Six or seven. <laughs> or seven <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, there, there you go. So that's a healthy democracy. To me, that's, yeah, it's healthy that these things are coming out, that people realize that there are differences. Okay, okay so yeah. that's a different take on things. Yeah. And in fact... And that's good. Yeah. And that's good because we should question whether or not Anwar Ibrahim is the right person to be the Prime Minister in two, one and a half years, right? right. We should be asking this question. We should be asking whether Azmin Ali yeah. is the better guy, yeah. all things being equal, etc., 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 etc. And we should be having this discussion about whether or not the cabinet ministers are good and fit for purpose for the job and whether or not some of them are doing what is expected and whether some of them are not, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So that's good. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so 2019, um, what's in store on the political front? Because there's this school of thought that this instability is not good because there's a lot of things which are happening outside the country which is obviously um, unsettling for a lot of people who are doing business. And um, if we've got this political instability at home, so it's not going to be good. Actually, okay, this is a really a left field here. When you say instability, what do you mean by instability? Well, the fact that the coalition seems to be having this power struggle. As you say, some people say it's good. Okay, today, so, they have, so, yeah, so they're having their power struggle. So what's going to be worse? What happens then? Do you really think they're going to break up? No way, they've got, four, they've got a four-year mandate at least, right? Okay. Four or five-year mandate. So you still have some semblance of government in place, don't you? Some semblance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And here's a, here's a really left field one, right? We look on Thailand, for example, as... Okay, look, it's got no democracy. Okay, they've had so many coups they've had, you know. Uh, That's another one. That's another one which has had a huge upheaval the last few years. And they've still been able to make it happen, right? The economy still moves on. Correct. And if you look at that... Thailand has more globally, really globally competitive companies than Malaysia. But do you know the, the world's largest producer of canned tuna is Thai? CP. Yeah. yeah. I think, uh, is, it, is John West even owned by them now? You know, I just remember being really surprised that you know, I bought this can of tuna in the market. In a, in a very, very like old Western brand. Right? Yeah, yeah. You look at it. John oh, West, that's right. It's actually owned by... The Thais. By the Thais. 
So thanks. We don't well, at one point in time, English. the Thais used to own Manchester City, and Manchester City is the best <laughs> football <laughs> team in the country, right? There in you the go. UK, right? Yeah. So actually, what you would argue actually is some. So from that perspective, right, here's a really left field argument, right? That what you that what helped Malaysia back was actually our government was too strong. Too strong in a sense that they had all these Malaysia plans, and they had all these agendas, and money to fund these agendas to fund inefficient companies, and they crowded out real private sector investment. In Thailand, you had a government that was good enough to get the country together, but the private sector was pretty much left to fend for itself. Really, you know, there's no, no uh, Thai. Well, you know, we have a ten Malaysia plan, however, there's no such thing in Thailand, as far as I can, as far as I know. We don't have any like big agencies or big initiatives, but they find a way. Speaking of agencies, you spent some time in Bandung, right? Or rather, you worked <laughs> with Pemandu, right? <laughs> <laughs> you mean worked against Pemandu? <laughs> yeah, you've got some pretty strong views on Pemandu. Yeah. Pray tell. Uh, I mean, to me, that was a classic of a uh, big government, government sticking its nose into things that which they had no business doing. Some examples? Well, okay, the, 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 whole, the whole thing for a start, for example, you know, um, the very first thing was, uh, they made a big thing about, we, we got these NKEAs, or National Key Economic Areas, and what we're going to do is that we have these labs where we invite all these uh, top industry players in. And then from these labs, we're going to uh, highlight certain projects which become our EPP's entry point projects. Right? So, and the whole idea is to transform the economy. Right? Now, you take it back one step. When you hold labs like this, who's going to come? Who are you going to invite? You're gonna, uh, rather, you're going to invite the big players. Yeah. I'll put it another way, for example, right? Let's say if you take a neutral example, take the US, uh, say around... Was it around the late... When were they really afraid of the Japanese? When the US economy was in the doldrums? Oh, the 80s, right? At 80s least or 80s. 90s. Yeah. Okay, yep. Yeah. And then after that, okay, so maybe... So they get eaten up by the Japanese, the yeah. 80s, worry about our oh, in that... Oh, Economy yeah. shrinking, blah blah blah. And then you had Die Hard with the Nakamichi Center. Oh, yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. And then they bought the Rockefeller Center. And yeah, blah, yeah, blah, that's right. right. So maybe at this point in time, some US president says, oh, right, you know, we are in really serious trouble. We need to reinvent the economy. Yeah. And IT is starting to take off. Yeah. Okay. So we are going to develop the IT sector. To do that, we need a lab. Okay. And if at that time, when you do a lab, who's going to be there? It's going to be IBM, Motorola, um, okay, Microsoft, right? Oh, HP, Hewlett Packard, perhaps. Right. But, because that's a sensible thing to do in your government, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, you want to invite the big guys. Yeah, because, and actually, that's what you have to do. And actually, it's not also a fault finding exercise, because if you're a government, you have to deal with the credible players. You can't you invite know? the startups. No way. Yeah. Exactly. But the big things that really transformed the US were Apple. And bear in mind, at that point in time, Steve Jobs was out in the wilderness, kicked out of his own founding company. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Google was like a startup. If any government bureaucrat had invited Mark Zuckerberg to a lab, what would people have said? What is wrong with you? Exactly. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Who is what this is... young guy in a, in a hoodie? Yeah. And, um, Doesn't even have a degree. Slippers, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Drop out. Yeah. So this whole thing about government identifying winners was just completely ridiculous. And yet they still exist to this to this day, Pemandu. <laughs> Today? I thought they've been... Uh, well, they've been privatized in privatized. a way, but they still do a lot of government work. All right. 
I mean, foundations. Well, okay, but bear in mind, okay, fair enough. Um, those are my biases, if you like. But what actually what happened was that, uh, ironically, uh, when Idris Jalla first went in, uh, I felt he was a good thing. He was, you know, professional in there, refreshing. And then at that point also was that the criticisms of Pemandu were that they were expensive. But to my mind, um, those were very misplaced criticisms or unfair criticisms because, hey, look, I come from an investment banking background, right? And how we justify high salaries is, yeah. hey, look, you know, I cost this much by burning this amount of business. <laughs> so actually, when Kenming and I first started this thing, uh, it was that, look, this okay, thing meaning um, this whole um, evaluation of Pemandu. Okay. You know, because at that and point... And has been another vocal critic of Pemandu. He, yeah, actually, we started it together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because, okay, um, Idrisal came in, they set up a mandu, they came out with their big roadmap thing. And then really at that point, the opposition criticisms really were just harping on about how expensive they were. Yeah. And for me, another pet peeve of mine is that Malaysians don't value professionals. Yeah, and unfortunately. My, yeah, exactly. And to my mind, it was, hey, even if a mandu costs, say, 1 billion ringgit in total, let's say, for example, if they had delivered on the, like, 300 billion or 400 billion of added value. Okay, it's worth the money. Yeah, to me, it's, you know, you, you don't look at a dollar value of the absolute quantum, you look at what return you get from the quantum. Yeah. So we started from that basis, actually, right? Uh, and, you know, Pemandu in the early days was actually very good. They came out with this big report. And so came and I sat down and said, hey, you know, let's do this agnostically, yeah. right? Um, they're putting out these numbers here and all this data. Let's track them. And you know, if they do deliver, this is great. You know, everyone's everyone. You know, everyone gets richer. Everyone is happier, and we pay them whatever they, you know, whatever cut they want to take. A fair cut is more than fair. You know, <laughs> coming from a broken background, Getming <laughs> and I, we actually approach this from a very analytical standpoint. You know, let's be fair to Pemandu. They say they want to do these things, and let's track them on this. And really, as Malaysians, we hope they deliver. But the really sad part was. So that is very big uh, roadmap book, right? The instant we started, op really, like, uh, once we started looking into the numbers or their plans, we found that they didn't add up, really. You know, um, even, like, you know, numbers didn't add up, seriously. And we were hugely disappointed. And really, perhaps that was the mistake that we made. That How can that be a mistake? No, the mistake that I made was that we were hugely disappointed. So the tone of our very first report was very aggressive. I see. And that put them on the defensive straight away. You know, with hindsight... It could have uh, been a bit more collegial in a way. Yeah, that's right. You know, if yeah. hindsight and age, you know, at, at that time, look, I was still only, what, in my 30s? Yeah, <laughs> you know, 30s. yeah so guns blazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And yeah. how can you do this with tax pay money? Yeah. Exactly, yeah, um, yeah, 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 that's yeah, that was that kind of thinking coming through. <laughs> so it really showed in the first few um, reports that we put out. Yeah. You know, now that I, you know, after that, after re after rereading them a few years later, yeah, okay, now I understand why they were so defensive. <laughs> yeah, but I think sometimes people forget that Malaysia is only what sixty plus years old. You know, we've only just become our own country um, since the late fifties, nineteen fifty seven. Um, we've come a long way, yeah. and sometimes I think we lose sight of the fact that we are a very young country. I mean, I, I, you know, I went to Australia to study, and in the 80s, Australia was only a 200-year-old, or less than that, right? And people were calling Australia a relatively young nation. And they had a couple hundred years under them, with 60-plus years. And I think 
I don't know. I, I know. I know you sound a bit incredulous, but um, I know we've got a long way to go. But sixty plus years, we've achieved quite a lot. Don't don't you think? Sadly, no. Actually. Yeah. Really. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Tell me. Um, okay. Well, let's from your perspective, we've achieved quite a lot. What have you achieved actually? What do you want Malaysia to be? All right. I guess if you say achieve quite a lot. Um, Right. Relative, relative not, wealth, yes. No, actually, okay, in a way, it depends on where you're looking from. I think you and I are very lucky. Or rather, I think, well, certainly I think I'm really hugely fortunate that I graduated at a time when Malaysia was really booming. You know, that, uh, like I said, you know, bonuses were good, pay was good. And it was just fantastic exposure. Like, you know, at the time, as you said, Malaysia was 8% of the... Uh, the KLC, well, the MSCI, no, right? The global weightage, It was a market everyone, everyone wanted to know about. That's right that we actually had even um, with New York it was conference calls every day and we used to hate it because like 8pm at night conference calls in New York but you know the exposure you got was just yeah looking back on it at the time yeah. wow what an experience right because yeah, they yeah. wanted to know Wall Street wanted to know about yeah. Malaysia yeah that's right so people like me yes uh, in that sense we had that really 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 good uh, yeah we achieved a lot you know many of we got educated we got uh Foreign universities, we had all this, uh, we got our house, we got our car paid for, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And then, you know, we had KLIA, which was at the time amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Um, the North South Highway, amazing. Yeah, amazing, that's right. Halimsa, notwithstanding, Renung, notwithstanding. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It costs a lot, but, you know, it's bad. But kind of worth it, right? Kind of worth it, yeah, you could say. But what I'm saying then is actually, really, since uh, after 1998, things haven't what? changed yeah. very much. In that sense, or right after the first Asian crisis for us. What about the fact that Malaysians generally are wealthier, healthier, living longer, um, much more aware of the world around us than even the typical American or the typical typical Brit? Um, again, much more engaged with the rest of the world, I, I guess, and living in this internet era, which is amazing in terms of opportunities and in terms of starting new businesses. I mean, you you know, there is no other. F- period and, and I think personally in the last 50 years when it has been so fertile for ideas and for entrepreneurs to come out and start their own businesses young people all over the place are like I think wisely f- foregoing the corporate world to start their own businesses and, and you can find a new business on social media it's incredible okay, let me ask you how are these young people funding their businesses people like us who are funding energy and funding ideas and funding uh, youth and vigour is it people like people us? like us in our age, don't you think so? Uh, because the amount of startup capital out there now is amazing. Uh, it is, but my sense also is that a lot of these are mom and pop funding. Okay, parent parental funding. Yeah, yeah. that's right. You know, they fortunate enough to be born into very high net worth families. You seeing that? That's uh, again, all this is just perception, yeah. right? Yeah. So, like, if you look at say elsewhere, for example. Um, Let's say for an ordinary uh, Malaysian middle-class family, grow up, uh, did all the things... No such opportunity. Correct. And then he goes and gets a regular job. And how much is a regular job paying him nowadays as a fresh grad? Not a lot. Uh, I think maybe Mm. two, five, three k So, actually, that's the other thing that that really struck home recently, that, you know, when I first graduated, Singapore was actually an expensive country. That if you're a fresh grad, even after exchange and all that, right? If you're a fresh grad, you actually did pretty well in Malaysia. You know, my starting pay was at that point uh, 
about 1,700 ringgit. And Which event was this? Uh, RHB, uh, the DNC Sakura merchandise. 1,700 ringgit. Yeah. So, okay, <laughs> break. Top up? Yeah, top up. Yeah. yeah, so we're talking about Malaysia and Singapore and if you talk about development, right? So when I first graduated, starting pay was 1,700. And I still remembered my uh, first paycheck. I took my uh, grandma and parents to Shangri-La for buffet lunch. Wow. Okay, I didn't do that for my parents. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and I still remember the cost. It was like 43 plus plus. Which You're was, kidding. Something like that. Shangri-La? Because, yeah. No way. Serious. Okay. And it was like, so it came out with like 50 ringgit net, like lunch for okay, me. Yeah, 50 ringgit net per, you know. So, you know, for, so let's say, you know, you're a fresh grass thing, your parents can still afford that. as so, now you're a fresh grad, I think starting pay maybe is like 2.5? I don't know. Not a great deal higher. Not a great deal higher, but how much is the buffet in Shang now? I think it's like 200 plus? 200 net? Yeah, there or thereabouts. Yeah. yeah. No way you're going to be able to afford that. Yeah. Whereas, let's say if you're in Singapore, starting pay is probably around, two, around say 2,000 perhaps. But a decent meal costs you a lot less, like maybe like 20, 20 sing, 30 sing? So what would be the um, advice, kind of like, um, what would be the message to, you know, because what you are proposing or what you're suggesting now is that it's a lot bleaker today than, you know, in the, 90, the 80s or the 90s. I, I, I personally think is yeah, okay, I, I take on more what you just said and, and about the cost of living and inflation and all that. But these guys are growing up in an era where the internet is booming, it's, it's opening up all kinds of opportunities. And there's never been a better time, in my opinion, and I'm quite a bit of a cynical, pessimistic journalist kind of mother crusher, right? Um, but I also think that this there's no other better time to be a young person than now. You know, the opportunities for international travel is there, it's abundant, it's acceptable. Um, you know, your, your access to, to, to venture funding is, is perennially there, whether it's through friends and family or, or people that you know. Two, three phone calls of separation. Um, the ideas that you can get funded, the kind of new opportunities in computer science, artificial intelligence, internet of things, big data, social media, it's all there and it's abundant. And I, there's an explosion of entrepreneurs in the country and in the Klang Valley. It's amazing. It's amazing. The last time I saw this explosion of ideas was in the late 90s, early 2000s. Okay. Dot com 2, okay? okay? Right? Or dot com 1. Yeah. Right? And we are my, my own company flamed out in those days. Okay. But uh, yeah, you know, it's amazing. I think it's great. Um, so, so what would be the message to entrepreneurs or, or to young people that are trying to make it in the next 10 years? And the next 10 years can be really challenging. You know, um, what would you say to them? How would you help prepare them for the next 10 years? I think it's always to you know, figure out what you're good at and to always be curious. What you're good at, how you can do it better, and how you can connect it to something else. And that's a value proposition. How important are soft skills? Uh, certainly to me, very, very, that's possibly the most important, actually. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean... Because you don't learn that at university. Correct, and you and I, in, well, you've done media and I've done sales side and you already know bullshit sales, right? Yeah, bullshit sales and bullshit, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, it's, like, it's like you got one credible person who knows a lot but can't speak very well. Another person who maybe knows like one quarter of that but can just talk yeah. the, yeah, talk socks off an uh, Eskimo, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, in my time in the corporate world, yeah. <clears throat> I've seen you guys in the bank, right? 
and some of the most technically adept guys continue to slave away in middle management and you know never really get promoted yeah. and then the top guys top guys including people like Jamie Demon, JP okay. Morgan right yeah. he's not technically the most proficient guy yeah. but bloody hell can the guy talk yeah. can he sell an idea or what right yeah. and I see banks guys in top positions at the banks they can basically they, they know which way is up in terms of um, um, influencing their bosses in terms of getting their underlings to work for them yeah. in terms of getting friends I'm not, I'm not going to name the bank CEO that, that is probably the best fit for that description right now but he would say that he is one of the best networkers in the country in terms of you know getting people to be on his side very impressive uh, skill to have but you don't learn that in university you learn all the nuts and bolts you learn all the hard skills but to be to have strong interpersonal skills is very difficult but you come to say that you know you say you don't learn that in university so it's a very interesting digression what do you expect to you don't learn that in a in a in a in a classroom setting necessarily yeah exactly that's right? right yeah but but if you're abroad and if you're like say the UK and you yeah. went over with a Malaysian contingent yeah. if you don't interface with the rest of the uh, student body then you would be doing yourself a gross disjustice. And I know a lot of Malaysians who went abroad and they never ever uh, know, they hung just, out with non-Malaysian people. They just set up their own new religion, their own yeah. kampong. You know, yeah, the Chinese yeah, crowd, yeah, they yeah, hang yeah, out yeah. themselves, then the Malay crowd there. Absolutely, yeah, the Malaysian right. crowd and then yeah. the Malay crowd, the Chinese guys, yeah, and, right? right? Yeah. The Honkies would do the same thing, yeah, right? right? The Israelis would do the same thing, yeah. right? Um, the Scottish would do the same thing, etc., etc. But yeah, you don't learn that in a formal way. So for the young person... Yeah. Interpersonal skills, skills. But you don't learn in a formal. You don't learn it in a formal you know, in a formal way. But I mean, that was what university was supposed to have been about. I think. Th- that for me, is the one reason why I would send my kids to university. I don't believe in what they're paying. But having said I don't that, believe that what I'm paying in terms of their education yeah. is worth what they're going to get paid when they come out, or the debt they're going to be taking to fund that education. But that the experience abroad, of flying abroad, of living on your own, of fending for yourself by interfacing with other nationalities and culture is worth the money. Ah, uh, no, but hey, but do you need to do it that way? Yes, correct. That's why I agree with you, right? That's why earlier we agreed upon. If there's an option for my children to say, hey, if I don't pay for your schooling or your university, I give you the option. You can travel for six months in South America. I'll pay half, you pay the other half. You go and work for half. Yeah, because, for example, you know, just uh, was it today's newspaper? I was just reading about the uh, Suji Foundation in doing, doing work in Turkey, Istanbul. The, the, which foundation? The Suji, uh, I don't, don't know how to pronounce it properly. The Taiwanese one, T Z U C H I, Suji, Suji. Okay. Uh, they were a big, um, big uh, organization nowadays, actually. Okay. So they are actually running. So they are Buddhist based, but quite incredible is that they are running a very big uh, medical center in Turkey for Syrian refugees, and. You know, you talk about soft skills and the like. Instead of going to a university whereby universities nowadays also because they are forced to spend so much more effort on teaching and you know, the whole values chain has changed. You know, but if you talk about soft skills learning to work, I would say spending like four to six months at a place yeah, like this. Yeah, that's absolutely so yeah. if you're like a young person just setting on the world yeah. and you put up your name to go and work in Turkey in a in a medical hospital, yeah. what an amazing experience that would be. Yeah, that's right. But even in those days, you 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 had those experiences. You had those those um, those um, kind of projects that were available. It's just that we didn't, as Asians, feel that we could apply for those things because we were too busy getting degrees. Okay, and, yeah, true. But, but universities are yeah, studying yeah. studying law. Yeah. 
if you told your parents, hey, I want to go and volunteer in, uh, you know, Medicine Sans Frontier in, in Africa, they say, hey, Lusiawa. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Crazy, I'm going to spend six months there. What are you going to do? You're going to get a degree, right? Yeah. The sooner you finish your degree, the sooner you can come out and get a job and earn a salary. Yeah, but I think times are changing. Times are certainly changing. So, um, what's next for you? What's next for me? Um, running my stretch therapy center. Uh, learning Tai Chi. <laughs> okay, okay. That's all good. <laughs> you don't believe that I can learn Tai Chi. <laughs> Yeah, so how do you end up in stretch therapy? Oh, purely by really luck, really, or good fortune, you say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, it was my wife who got started. My wife, had, my wife actually um, used to be a chartered accountant. She quit corporate way before me. She was teaching yoga. And one of her... Okay, well, stretch therapy, the founder is um, Australian. Uh, but we are very lucky in that at one point in his life, um, he was spending time teaching at retreats at the SBS, which is a monastery in, in Taiping. Okay. So one of my wife's... It's a Buddhist monastery. It's a Buddhist it? monastery. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So at meditation retreats, you go there and teach uh, what you call mindful stretching. So anyway, uh, so happened one of my wife's students had gone for the retreat and said this guy was fantastic. And he was really so fantastic because... Australian guy. Australian it? guy, yeah. His name is Kit Laughlin. And apparently it was so fantastic that the head monk came down to have a look. And then said, hey, it's actually quite interesting. Would you teach this to my monks? And Kit said, well, all right. Uh, um, all I ask is uh, you pay for my airfare. So what they then did was that to pay for his airfare, um, so they organized a workshop six months later. And to pay for his airfare and expenses, they opened up the workshop to outsiders. So here was uh, the hall, monks in one side and outsiders on the other side. And my wife said, you And know, then this, this, this Masali guy is actually... Masali guy, yeah, teaching, teaching uh, monks and lay people how to stretch, so, so to speak. And then my wife came back and said it was really good. So I went to check out the website. And here's the website and I found, hey, it's quite interesting too. So next year he was back and I went for it. And I found that uh, he just calls it stretch therapy. But really, to my mind, he was the best teacher of moving meditation ever. So how does it work? What's the principle behind it? The principle behind it is really developing awareness of your own body. That in terms of stretching technique, you know, he's technically... Um, Alright, have you ever gone for martial arts classes? No, not formal. Not formal, but okay, if you go for any kind of stretching, like say taekwondo class or whatever, right? Stretching is always about pull harder, push harder. Get yourself into that, you know, get your body to like, get you into that position. So underlying that is the assumption that flexibility is all about how tight your muscle is. But actually flexibility is about your mind. The best proof of that is that uh, if someone has fainted, if you've ever done first aid, if you try to lift an unconscious person... It's dead weight. It's, it's so dead weight, yeah. yes. They're completely flexible, you know, you carry them this way, they flop that way, you carry them that way, they flop the other way. But the instant they regain consciousness, all the tightness comes back in. So flexibility is about the mind as well as the body. And what it is is that essentially your mind, over time as you grow and shape your experiences, your mind develops this image of what your body can and cannot do. Okay. 
So stretch therapy technique works with your mind and your body to help you improve your flexibility and strength. But because you're actually working with the mind really, it's also moving meditation. You know, when I see guys doing walking meditation and like trying so hard to get that feeling, I think, wow, you know, it's like I'm so lucky to have found this technique. So what are the benefits to you in terms of um, how you think and your, your physical um, well-being and, and your strength? But what, what, how does it translate well, in terms of uh, tangible benefits? Uh, definitely in terms of physics, you know, uh, really I think I'm in the best shape of my life. Yeah? Yeah, in terms of... How? how? In, in what way? In terms of, um, you know, you feel so good in terms of... I don't... Okay, I used to go for massage every week, seriously. I got to know my messiah so well that Deepawali, I get invited to his house. Because <laughs> uh, massage, because you're, you're hurting all over, your joints, you know, especially, you your know, neck was painful. Stiff neck, stiff shoulders, like, and then you used to blame me on corporate That's memories. what I'm having now. I see, okay. Right. Really stiff neck, really stiff back, and mm. constantly in some kind of like ache or pain, perennially. Yeah. Yeah. So I used to go at least once a week, sometimes twice a week to the guy, you know? Okay. Yeah. So you're saying stretch therapy will sort it out? Because yeah. I know that I can stretch some of my aches out for sure. Yeah. I just that I'm not too disciplined about it. Okay. I, I know, but I know that I, I can stretch it out. Yeah, because what, what happens is that because you're working on the mind as well, you also work on the underlying cause of the aches and pain. That a lot of these aches and pains are because over time you have started to move in, in uh, inefficient ways. Okay, for example, let's put it this way. Sitting upright actually, you know, um, Normal tendency for most people nowadays is to slouch like that. You know? Okay, the slouch. Yeah. Normal tendency, isn't it? But actually now I find this position. So there's a very interesting transition that, you know, I got to the point where this wasn't, this didn't feel right anymore. But when I sat upright, it didn't feel right either. Okay. <laughs> it was not natural. It was not my natural, so to speak. But so, so essentially it's like reworking your mind, you know, reworking your perception of what is normal okay. to what really is good for you. So does it, are there benefits in terms of how you think, positive attitudes to people or, or, or rather to situations or do you just feel more limber, more, 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 more fit? What, what, what are the tangible benefits? How, how, you know, have the aches and pains disappeared? Are you no longer in pain? Okay, I wouldn't say no longer in pain because greatly reduced. Bear, bear in mind, let's really say, like I always like, tell my students, you work very hard to get to this point. You know, they come in to you with all this like stuff. Yeah, stuff, yeah. Right? So yeah. and it's because of hard work really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hard work in the corporate yeah. runways. Yeah. 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 All, all the time spent in front of the computer. Yeah, and computer and you know, not, not not being aware of all this tension you're holding. Yeah, yeah. So now you have to work hard to <laughs> clear it. Okay. Yeah. So typically what kind of stuff would you do? Well so well, stuff um exercises. Okay. So essentially every uh, depends on um on, on the people. So we have regular group classes. So group classes every week we will have a team because you can't work the whole body in one in one session. So like some some team some weeks for example we work on upper body. Some bodies some some weeks for example uh, uh, back lower back. Other times for example uh, knee issues foot issues. So you know over time as as people come regularly they should see some benefit. Okay, and typically are the other participants are older. Older people, or yeah, for, yeah, for us, they would be typically typically be older people, right? Um, here, yes, but it's quite ironic because the uh, kid actually, the founder, um, he was actually an Olympic. Uh, he trained for Olympic weightlifting. Okay. Uh, Australian, and then he moved to middle distance running, so he's actually a very accomplished uh, athlete. And in fact, um, he has um, 
trained with, he has rather been called in to help the um, Australian cricket team. He has been called in to help the London Ballet, you know, London, London Ballet School. Okay. So he actually has, um, in Australia, they, they, they've gone to the point where it's a range that essentially even elite athletes go there. Okay. Uh, for us right now, our clientele tends to be people who are, want to get started exercise but are afraid of exercise, so to speak, and they see us as a gentle move into exercise. Okay, so it's yeah. kind of like Qigong, but not really Qigong, or, or, or Tai Chi, but not really Tai Chi. In, in a sense, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah right. that's right. Yeah. But uh, so, so that, that's a start for us. But for me, really, you know, it's really, really phenomenal for improve. Like, I found it helped my Tai Chi a lot as well. Yeah. And okay, well, the way I do Tai Chi also is a lot different from the Park Tai Chi. But that's another story. Okay. Yeah. So what are you doing in terms of... Okay, so, so kind of last area before I let you go. Okay. Um, but um, so, so what are you doing to keep yourself healthy in terms of diet? You told me about exercise, so stretch therapy is one of them. Tai Chi is another one. Yeah. Um, do you keep yourself healthy by way of your, your nutrition? Are you, are you a vegetarian? Or do you watch what you eat? If so, how? You know, things like that. Well, I would say um, I'm flexitarian. Uh, Flexitarian. Yeah. Okay. So, but it's not. It was uh, in that I prefer to eat vegetables nowadays, but I'm not strict about it. Why is that? Why is what? Why 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 do you avoid meat? Um. Is is it like a, is it like an environmental thing? Is it like a humanitarian thing? Is it like a health thing? Or? No. It's it's just really that uh, over time, as you become more aware of your own body, uh, me pers- Okay. Again, everybody is different. So again, it's like. Different people have different diets, and that's perfectly fine. But like for me, for example, yeah, I used to love uh, hamburgers. Hard Rock Cafe when it first opened, when it first opened way, way back, it was like, Amazing. wow, yeah. I Amazing. used to love it, man. Yeah, yeah. But now I find that when I eat a steak, I can feel it's very hard to digest. It takes the body a lot of work to, to digest a steak. Because all the, all the, all the in, 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 well, because your body is now in, ingrained and, and more in tune with, with the, the more fibrous and, and, and uh, no, veg, no, it started because, no, rather because increased awareness of um, what, of uh, your own body sensations. Okay, because when you're doing, our, our technique is like you become aware, stretch therapy technique, for example, is becoming aware of uh, your body sensations, where you feel the stretch, how you feel the stretch, um, how to relax the rest of your body. So like, as you become more aware of your body, you realize that actually some foods are easier to digest than others. And I realized that actually after eating a steak, I feel very sluggish. So it wasn't like I said, I'm not going to eat a steak anymore. You know, like, but it was like... So once in a while, you still have a steak. Like. No, I, I just like, you know, I've, so first I, I ate a steak. You know, hey, I, I like my burger. Eat a burger. Then after that, you regret it. <laughs> because you realize that because of your awareness increased so much, you realize that it's actually quite hard work and you feel a bit more sluggish than usual. Then over time, you... If you feel that it's not good for you, then you just uh, stop eating it. And I don't see it as like a big change in the sense that, for example, uh, I don't know, what was your favorite food as a little boy, for example? I don't know, man. Pizzas, you, ice yeah, cream, whatever. You probably won't eat it anymore because it, it doesn't appeal to you anymore, right? Once in a while. Once in a while. Once in, know, in a while, yeah. like this, you know. But it's like our taste changed over time. Yeah. So, okay, how to keep myself healthy is really just... Uh, I'm not. I'm not a vegetarian. I said I'm flexitarian. Um, just by evolution over time, it was not as if I decided that this is healthy, so I'm going to do it. But it's just because that, um, in terms of what I felt on my own body, that it was the natural thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. So still happy, happily drinking whiskey. Yeah, because I think every man kind of like needs a like a vice in, the, <laughs> in their life, right? Yeah. 
How do you how do you square that with your health um you know uh, point of view? No, I think that's the other thing about everybody, right? It's like they want this quick fix and they want this they, all these latest fads about this diet is good for you, that diet is good for you. Yeah. I really think moderation. Yeah. And I think why there's so many problems nowadays is really that things that used to be treats in the past are every day are available every day now. Yeah. You know, I think maybe you know, in our parents' time, for example, meat was perhaps once a week. A bit or, of a yeah, a yeah, bit of a treat, right? A bit of a treat, you know, and then, you know, um, like stories like my dad would say is that, you know, in those days, you know, like the drumstick, hey look, one chick you know, it's like family dinner, one one whole chicken, right? Yeah. And the drumstick goes to grandpa and granddad. Yeah. But now you can just go to the supermarket and buy a whole <laughs> bag full of chicken drumsticks. So really, it's moderation and being sensible. Yeah, man. Yeah. Okay, well, um, you and I, you know, you and I are kind of roughly the same age. We're trying to figure it out, right? Yeah. And it's an ongoing dilemma. Yeah. Um, I haven't figured it out. I'm a long way from figuring it out. It's a process. It's so a process. I, I don't claim to have figured it out either. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I, I think our, our, our words and, you know, kind of like the collective experience will be interesting for someone who's in his early 30s, late 20s. And, you know, sometimes I, I, I tell myself the reason why I'm bringing this podcast is because when I was at age, at 31 years old, I know I, I, I know mentors, I know guidance, I know like uh, people, elder people to talk to. And I was looking for answers. I was looking for a way to, 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 to invest some money more wisely. I was looking for some people to tell me about what, what career to, to do mm-hmm. next. Should I, should I go and join Bloomberg and not, uh, you know, should I, should I not join Bloomberg and go and continue with my little consultancy? I had no idea. And I guess in a way, you know, what I, why I'm doing Do More is so that I can help the younger people make up their minds. Not necessarily provide a quick fix, but just through the experiences of people like you and me, yeah. you know, and just have an indication as to what they should do next. And, you know, after, after the career move, it's, it's, it's about, um, you know, the family, it's about, you know, even retirement, how much, what you should leave for your children, how you should advise them. And, you know, to be honest, at our age and our vintage, it's not about us anymore. It's about our children. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's been a huge pleasure chatting with you. Cheers to that. Cheers to that, man. Too. Um, Thank you, Lionel, um, for your yeah, thanks, Lionel. glorious, yeah. glorious yeah. Uh, Founders' Reserve. Yeah. Just made our tongues a lot looser than what we normally would be. So, <laughs> thank you. Cheers, man. Cheers. Thank you. And cheers, Lionel. Cheers, Lionel.